Hello and welcome to the Rebel Chronicles, the show giving you little snippets of revolutionary history. My name's Paul Case. And in this episode we're going to talk about Fitzrovia, an area nestled away in London's swanky West End. It's bordered by the belching black fog of Euston Road to the north, the flashing, glistening, screeching Oxford Street to the south, and to the east and west by Bloomsbury Street and Great Portland Street. According to Fitzrovia Partnership's 2014 economic report, a massive 128,000 people work half a mile from there, and after five on weekdays, the pubs team with people grappling for a post-work pint. In summer, they spill out onto the pavement to enjoy the rare English warmth, surrounded by grand, blinding white houses peppered with blue plaques, emblazoned with the names of the affluent and the powerful individuals who have lived there, such as 19th century Prime Minister Robert Gascoigne Cecil and Sir Charles Eastlake, the founder of the National Portrait Gallery. George Orwell, Virginia Woolf and Arthur Rambo also made their home there relishing the early 20th century concentration of bohemians, artists and writers. But deep in the 19th century, Fitzrovia was the site of what was called by radical writer Charles Mulatto a little anarchist republic, which is almost entirely ignored since it doesn't fit snugly into the institutionalised history. There are two main reasons why radicals flocked to Fitzrovia. Firstly, in the 19th century, it was cheap. Although originally designed to entice the aristocracy, there was a slump in the London housing market, leaving many of the properties in Fitzrovia vacant and something close to affordable. Secondly, Britain's government at the time was dedicatedly liberal and consequently had very open borders for political refugees. This was handy to the many individuals who wished to escape repression, persecution, arrest and frequently death. Britain's border policy remained staunchly liberal until the 1905 Aliens Act, which established greater border controls. At one point or another before this, London was home to an array of radicals. Most famously, Karl Marx lived on Dean Street in Soho, but the capital also provided shelter for Italian insurrectionist Enrico Malatesta, famed Russian anarcho-communist and geographer Peter Kropotkin, and the militant feminist Louise Michel who we discussed in the last episode of the Rebel Chronicles. These exiles often came to London with nothing, reliant on the generosity of others already living in the capital. They crammed in, sometimes several to a single room. Many would have known each other from various political activities, such as the Paris Commune, and these shared experiences, beliefs and traumas helped create a close-knit community, and the rebel diaspora supplied a multitude of businesses, meeting places and drinking dens. French anarchist Armand Lapi opened up a newspaper and bookshop at 30 Goose Street after arriving in 1892. This proved a popular meeting point for the European radicals who were eager to find out news from their homeland. Although apparently there was only room for two people at a time, the shop became the site of numerous arguments and fallouts between local anarchists. Indeed, there's a well-known trait in leftist and anarchist circles of subdividing into various different factions and arguing extensively. Perhaps the most divisive and fundamental of these in anarchist circles at the time was between individualist anarchists and anarchist communists, 
respectively represented in the London-based Italian community by Luigi Parmigiani and Errico Malatesta. To put it simply, Parmigiani and his crew believed that the individual was the focus of all revolutionary activity. At its most extreme, this lamely justified random crimes for self-serving causes, masking them as revolutionary acts or expropriation. Malatesta, on the other hand, believed that popular mass insurrection was the key to revolution, and that Parmigiani's anarchism represented some of the very worst forms of egoism. Parmigiani opened up an antique shop in Bedford Square, just opposite the British Museum in the south-east of Fitzrovia, where, despite his undoubted involvement in various self-serving crimes and his violent propaganda, managed to live a vaguely respectable public life. Malatesta himself was very good friends with Victor Richard, who had fought on the barricades of the Paris Commune and had managed to escape to Fitzrovia, opening up a grocer at 67 Charlotte Street, which became a resounding success, not least because of his empathy and kindness to all those who had suffered similarly to him. But the most famous radical base set up in Fitzrovia was undoubtedly the Anarchist International School, founded in the autumn of 1890 at 19 Fitzroy Street. One of the main instigators of the school was aforementioned teacher and anarchist agitator Louise Michel, who, after her return to Paris in 1880, spent many years in and out of London, popping into various radical congresses or delivering a fiery lecture from a podium. Also on the board were Peter Kropotkin, Malatesta and English socialist William Morris, the latter becoming a legendary textile designer who, today, has a number of textile museums dedicated to him and his craft. The aims of the school were enshrined in a quote from Russian anarchist Mikhail Bakunin. All rational education is at bottom nothing but this progressive immolation of authority for the benefit of liberty, the final object of education necessarily being the formation of free men, full of respect and love for the liberty of others. Louise Michel added her own words. In a word, therefore, the object of the school is to make free and noble-minded men and women, not commercial machines. Its other aim was to steer education away from the subjugation of the church and encourage free-thinking individuals. The children who attended were empowered to bring their own ideas to classes and no subject was compulsory. Unfortunately, the international school was closed down a mere two years later after a police raid discovered bombs in the basement. The bombs were most likely planted there by Auguste Coulon, who, while also being secretary of the school, was also discovered to be a police spy. Louise Michel once joked that, we love having agent provocateurs, because they always propose the most revolutionary motions. This is just as true then as it is now. Police infiltrate radical groups and will frequently be the main instigators, goading radicals into more extreme action in order to have them arrested and the groups suppressed. In Fitzrovia and London generally, nearly every radical group was infiltrated in one way or another. The émigrés' home police forces, particularly those of France and Italy, were highly active in dispatching agents and recruiting informers. Often, more than one police spy at a time was in the same group, unaware of the other's existence, so the supervisors could double-check the information they were receiving. 
While the Met Police unofficially colluded with some of the foreign police forces, officially they were against preventative action and would only act once a crime had actually been committed. As a consequence of these infiltrations, the anarchists invented ways to avoid detection, such as creating codes and, and attempting to employ security measures that would unmask agents and informers. The rumour mill can turn ever so fast in a tight community, and amongst the Fitzrovian anarchists accusations of spying began to fly backwards and forwards. Luigi Parmigiani accused newspaper salesman Armand Lappi of being a spy in 1895 with such vitriol that Lappi felt pressed to leave London for Switzerland. In turn, Parmigiani, probably because of his vocal appreciation of dynamite and illegalism, was accused of being a provocateur. Despite these divisions, the radical Fitzrovia community would frequently come together to defend themselves against police investigations. One such incident involves Inspector Uilia, who was in London looking out for the anarchist Matteo. Attempting to pass himself off as an anarchist as he searched, he was soon recognised and Matteo's comrades decided to lead him on a wild goose chase. Time after time, they promised that Matteo would meet him and time after time, there was always some excuse. Always having his hair cut. Always out at the moment, and so on, and so on, and so on. Eventually, Uilia was led to a pub on Great Portland Street, which was stuffed with French anarchists. As he entered, the pub fell silent. Slightly unnerved, he asked for Matteo again. And then he noticed that many of the patrons were armed with heavy clubs. He looked behind him. The door was blocked by some similarly intimidating men. A bead of sweat trickled down his temple. Suddenly, the tense silence was broken by a Parisian anarchist raising his glass. To the French police, so well represented here by our excellent friend Monsieur Ouillier. Something tells me he'll be leaving England soon and we must give up hope of ever seeing him again. The crowd cheered and applauded, lining up to shake the hands of the ashamed Ouillier. It didn't stop there. Finally allowed to leave after being beaten with sarcastic toasting, the following morning he arrived at Charing Cross to escape London where he was met by a crowd of anarchists who helped him with his luggage, ensured he got on the train on time, passed on advice against the cold, and as the train pulled away to Folkestone, waved their handkerchiefs and gave their mocking farewells. Who said that anarchists didn't have a sense of humour? Thank you for listening to the Rebel Chronicles. My name's Paul Case. You can email me at captainoftherant at riseup.net if you want to get in touch. And considering I've been chatting about a radical school, I'm going to play you out of the coup's strange arithmetic. This is taught me some strange arithmetic. Using swords, prison bars, and pistols. English is the art of bombing towns While assuring that you really only bless the ground Science is the honorable, beautiful study Where you control the molecules and then you make that money 
In mathematics, dead children don't get at it, but they count the cost of bullets coming out the automatic. And I'm teaching my kids up. Please don't make me a bitch. Teach, stand up. Is a symphony of hunger and theft. Water shells often echo out the cash and the checks. In geography classes, borders, mountains, and rivers, but they will never show the line between the takers and givers. Algebra is that unique occasion in which a school considered there should be a balanced equation. And then statistics is the tool of the complicitous that everybody's with it. And you're the only critic, and I'm teaching my kids up. Studies is the Goliath to tackle, which turns into a sermon on simplicity and shackles. Physics is the school you own the science course, except for how to get the fuck out the ghetto, of course. Home ec can teach you how to make a few sauces and accept low pay from your Walmart bosses. If your school won't teach you how to fight for what's needed, they'll teach you to go through life and get cheated. And I'm teaching my hands up. Let's have a flip this system, bro.